For the week of May 22nd, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Welcome to our weekly audio Clean Tech Digest. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C. Pleased to have you with us as always. And there were so many conferences and events this uh, in the last two weeks in the city. This is like the first full day I've been able to sit down at my desk and have a breather. So this is uh, relaxation time for me. Joining us from her desk from her offices in D.C. is Catherine Hamilton. She is a partner at the public policy consulting firm 38 North Solutions. Catherine, I saw you briefly at the EE Global Efficiency event yesterday. Have you been making the conference rounds as well? Yeah, I've been trying to do that too. And in the middle of it, last night, my son came back from college after completing another epic road trip from California in his Flintstone-era Toyota. So really happy to have him home. Well, he's going to be in renewable energy finance soon, so he won't be driving a Toyota. He'll be driving a Tesla at some point. Yeah, that'd be super awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So Jigger's usually at a conference anyway, but this week he went rogue and he just decided to go on vacation. The nerve of that guy actually wanting a break. But we've got a special guest host this week, someone who may sound very familiar to you. It is Andrew Winston, who was on the podcast two weeks ago. He's a corporate consultant on environmental issues and author of the new book, The Big Pivot. Andrew, so glad to have you back on the show. Welcome. You've also been on the conference circuit this week, too, I understand, out in California. Yeah, that's right. I went to the Fortune Green event out in uh, Laguna Niguel, which is an incredibly beautiful location if anybody's been out there. And it was, uh, it was a really interesting event. I think we'll, we'll talk about it a little, bit, a little bit later. You got it. So we're going to have some insights into what's happening in the industry based on all of the conferences we've been attending. And we'll get into that in different ways throughout the show. Uh, but first, our first topic is going to be about China's big hacking scandal. This week, the Department of Justice indicted five military hackers in China for stealing sensitive documents from companies, including SolarWorld. We'll discuss the ongoing problem of IP theft in China. Then we'll talk about some big regulatory and financial plays for energy efficiency that were being talked about at some events that uh, Catherine and I were at. And in the last segment, we'll take a deeper dive into what Andrew picked up at the Fortune Brainstorm Green event, which is designed to bring big companies together to discuss solving environmental challenges. And that is his sweet spot. So we'll have some insights from that. And of course, at the end of the show, we'll try to dig up something you may not know. On to a story that has dominated the news cycle over the past few days, China's military hackers. On Monday, the Department of Justice indicted five people working for the Chinese government who, over the past few years, allegedly broke into computer systems of six industrial and energy companies based in the U.S. and stole trade secrets from them. One of those companies was, unsurprisingly to people who have been following the trade wars, Solar World. And on his show the other night, Stephen Colbert had his usual take on the news. Yes, cyber spies. It's like being a regular spy, but instead of a tuxedo, you wear an Adventure Time t-shirt with nacho hangs. <laughs> and folks, the Justice Department has put out this wanted poster to help us identify these dangerous online criminals. So look for it at the post office <laughs> when you go to pick up your email. But folks, in an attempt to give an edge to Chinese industries, these guys stole trade secrets from corporations like Westinghouse, U.S. Steel, Alcoa, and the renewable energy company Solar World. Of course, the Chinese can't do their own solar research, 
since they no longer have access to the sun. And at the end there, Colbert put up a picture of smog on the screen. Uh, But this is not a laughing matter for the companies who were hacked. And although this is the first time the U.S. government has indicted state-sponsored actors for hacking, it is just one of the many examples of IP theft in the corporate world out of China. One wind technology company, AMSC, had its proprietary software stolen by hackers in 2011 from its biggest customer, the Chinese wind company Sinovel. AMSC has since lost more than 80% of its value and has struggled to stay relevant in the wind market. The Department of Justice charged two Cinevelle executives last year, calling their theft nothing short of attempted corporate homicide. So I want to talk about the implications for the Department of Justice getting involved here. But first, I think it's helpful to hear how this impacts the way clean energy companies do business in China. And before the show, I talked with an old colleague of mine at the Center for American Progress, China expert Melanie Hart. And here's a little bit of what she said she's hearing from companies. So it's very difficult to track because what I hear is not that companies are not going to China, but that they're going to China only with the older technologies that they feel they can potentially afford to lose. So I frequently hear U.S. company leaders talking about the fact that their best and brightest technologies just cannot be adequately protected in the Chinese market, and therefore they have no choice but to keep them home. That's a very difficult decision for U.S. business leaders to make because they know if they could successfully deploy those technologies in the China market, it could have a very positive impact on their overall profit margin, on their business, and on their employees. But if by doing so they also open themselves up to very big IPR risks, Based on my own conversations, I see an increasing amount of U.S. executives making the decision to keep those best technologies at home. And this makes me particularly concerned about the future of U.S.-China clean energy relations because those decisions don't show up in the metrics. And I'm very concerned that we're going to be moving towards a situation where it is nearly impossible for the U.S. and China to cooperate on the next generation clean energy technology development unless it's within a protected government space like the CERC. Because too many U.S. companies are becoming increasingly nervous about operating in China without that very direct, very close government protection. So this is a real and present threat which we have talked about before on the show. But now that the Department of Justice has officially targeted state-sponsored hackers, the stakes have been raised. So, um, Catherine, I'm just curious, do you have any thoughts on the implications of the DOJ case? Are you hearing anything here in D.C., um, any noteworthy reactions? Well, one reaction, of course, is horror that this is happening. And the other reaction is, but this has been going on. So why is it just now kind of coming to the forefront of the news? Uh, Because, I mean, I've been hearing for years from companies that are doing smart grid storage, you know, all these cutting edge innovations that say, you know, we never do anything over there without knowing that the IP is going to walk out of the door in China. Uh, So, you know, what what's interesting is seeing who they're who they're going after. As you say, um, some of the renewable energy companies, which just tells you a little bit about how they think, um, you know, they should be investing um, and manufacturing, of course, certainly. No, it's really remarkable. I mean, you look at some of the cases in the past. The Chinese have been accused of stealing nuclear secrets since the 80s. They've been accused of stealing information on nearly every nuclear bomb we have in this country. There have been tons of hacking cases over the last decade. And corporate espionage has gotten bigger and bigger in the energy space. So 
I don't think this this is very surprising to a lot of people, but the fact that the Department of Justice is really getting involved here on a very high political level, and companies like Alcoa and like SolarWorld um, and some others are standing up, companies that historically, well, I suppose SolarWorld hasn't been uh, very afraid of standing up, but many uh, corporations have been very afraid of confronting the Chinese on a political level because publicly admitting that they were hacked um, might cause shareholders to ditch stock. It might cause more retaliation. Uh, it might give them a bad name in the market. There are any number of things. And what this DOJ case does is bring these companies out of the woodwork and say, hey, we have a real problem here and we need to address this on a national level. But it, but it's interesting because it does it in a way without having the companies be the one bringing suit, right? Um, and you wonder what kind of conversations were going on behind the scenes with with DOJ that in a way it gives a, it gives the companies kind of a front so that the that Chinese can retaliate. They've already you know said they're not going to come to some talks and they're not going to you know continue some some discussions country to country. But they have trouble kind of retaliating against a particular company, right? Because the company can say, oh, this is the DOJ. This wasn't. This wasn't us. Yeah. Yeah, I did hear from Melanie when I was chatting with her that some businesses were a little bit hesitant to get the DOJ to intervene <laughs> because they wanted to do it in straightforward legal, uh, straightforward legal manner within China um, because they felt like bringing a large political case, even though it was the DOJ standing in front of them. The, such a large political case would be cause for retaliation. And so hmm. they just haven't seen recourse in the courts. And now they're more willing to stand up and say, we need the government to get involved here. I think this is a big move and it proves how important renewable energy is in trade issues. We were talking about the AMSC case, that wind company a few months back. And um, when John Kerry sat down with his counterparts in China, that wind case was a huge piece of the government saying to Chinese officials, you need to stop this, this hacking effort. And so with wind, solar, and other technologies, renewables are a big piece of those negotiations now. Well, and they're big. I mean, that's what's interesting to me about this, this hacking is you look at the list of what they're accused of hacking, and it's about steel and aluminum, which, by the way, China uses about 45% of the world's steel and aluminum. So there's, you know, they have a need here, clearly. It was about nuclear technology and solar. So, I mean, clearly they think solar is really important uh, as an economic engine for them going forward. And, and, you know, I think they get it maybe, maybe in a deeper way than we do. Yeah, and there are different facets of this. So when China comes back and says, yeah, but look what the NSA is doing, this, this all hinges on what are you doing with the data that you're collecting? So what this data collection was going to do for the Chinese was to position them um, more strategically in business and in, in being able to, you know, to, to be able to make money on the, in the business world as opposed to the type of hacking that causes a disruption to, say, the grid or, you know, where, you, where you're worried about cybersecurity in the utility sector and, and bad players being able to get in and do things to the grid that would damage our, you know, the United States um, electric system. It's a totally different issue. And yet, some of the some of the issues are similar in that in in the firewalls that you have to put in in where you're manufacturing um and in just the the entire competitiveness issue no that's a good point and so after this doj indictment came out the chinese pulled out of high level cybersecurity talks and they said well 
you know, the documents leaked by Edward Snowden show that the NSA and, and other security agencies are spying on Chinese companies, too. But the U.S. are trying to make this distinction, and they're saying, well, yes, of course, there's a lot of spying going on, and I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I know what the NSA is doing, but the, the U.S. is trying to make this distinction by saying, we are doing this for intelligence gathering. We are not engaging in corporate espionage, whereas the Chinese are coming in and actually stealing trade secrets for their own domestic, nationally supported companies. And there's a big difference in that, claims yeah. the U.S. Yeah, yeah, but they don't see the difference there, right? Isn't that one exactly. of the cultural things? To them, the growth of their, their economy and their industries is national security, which they're probably closer to the truth, right? And, and, and these are state-owned, a lot of these are state-owned enterprises, so it is, in their mind, the same, it seems. That's the huge sticking point right now. When I was talking to Melanie, she was very clear in saying a lot of these negotiations aren't going anywhere because the Chinese do not see that distinction in the same way that the U.S. does. All right, let's move into our second topic and get an update on the efficiency and demand response sectors broadly. So there were a couple events in D.C. in the last two weeks related to these sectors, or a few events. There was the ACEEE Finance Forum the Demand Response Town Meeting, and the EE Global Conference. And I'm telling you, for those who don't follow efficiency closely, there is so much happening in the industry right now. And there were some really interesting conversations at these at these conferences. So I want to flesh some of those out. Yesterday, Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz popped into the EE Global Conference in D.C. to tout what the administration is up to in this area. Um, it's actually been exactly a year yesterday since Moniz was sworn in. And since then, he's pushed dozens of new appliance standards that were sitting there for years. He's helped work on programs to assist companies with fuel standards, helped develop the advanced manufacturing programs to boost electronics efficiency and materials efficiency, uh, a range of things. And he was there to tout that. But it was what he said about upcoming EPA carbon regulations that attracted a lot of attention, that demand side reductions would likely play a role in the flexible framework um, that states can use to meet carbon standards. And that is a really big deal because a lot of people in the industry have been worried that the EPA would leave out efficiency. Um, Catherine, we were talking about this yesterday. What do you think the significance of Moniz, Moniz's comments were? Did you have anything coming out of that speech? Oh, yeah. I was I was so happy that he affirmed what I've been telling people all along, which is 111D is going to be the biggest boost, boost for all kinds of clean energy technologies that we have. It's essentially going to be like, uh, you know, any kind of climate change legislation that you could have. Um, and what it does, I think what people have been thinking is that it's, that it's going to be like the, the, the previous rule, which, which regulated plant by plant, but that's not what it's going to do. It's going to set greenhouse gas targets for each state. And then it'll say to the states, okay, here's your target. You can use whatever you need to get to that target. What does that mean? That means they're going to have to pull together. Efficiency is the cheapest thing they can do, right? That's your first fuel. So if Efficiency, I think, is going to be the big winner in that context. And having uh, Secretary Moniz and then former Governor of Colorado Bill Ritter talk about it as well, that was really affirming because I think people need to be focused on EPA as this great opportunity for getting all these clean energy technologies out there. Yeah, but the really crazy thing about this is in my conversations with people within the industry, I heard three different people talking about the EPA skepticism over uh, monitoring and verification of energy reduction in, in the states. And they were saying, well, we think that M&V 
is sort of a black box. It's this, this voodoo magic, these mathematical models that don't always hold up. And we need real hard carbon reductions. And so on the efficiency side, we're not we're, we don't necessarily see that yet. So it's clear that efficiency is working, but the government needs really hard data. And so the industry I was hearing wasn't engaging EPA on these issues in the right way. And there was a lot of concern that beyond demand response, broader uh, residential and commercial efficiency efforts w- might not get included in the uh, EPA standards. Oh, I think they will. I think there's going to be, there's plenty of opportunity to comment. There's also plenty of data out there. And I know Andrew can attest to that. There is, there are plenty of data out there that show exactly the benefits of energy efficiency and the greenhouse gas, you know, reductions that it can, uh, that it enables. And I, and I think that as long as people get in and actually comment and engage and talk to the EPA, they'll definitely be able to have a place in it. No, absolutely. I think there's, there's, there's just countless examples of, you know, at the corporate level, the, and they've tracked extremely well, right? Because they want to show the, the savings um, and they want to show it to their management if they're, if they're kind of in the operational line or, or they want to show it to stakeholders. I mean, there's been a tremendous tracking of new technologies or, or behavior change, you know, um, paths that they've gone down in companies and how much they've saved in carbon and energy. And it's been, I think, shocking how big a percentage in many companies they can, they can save. So that, you know, that first fuel idea of efficiency is clearly powerful. But it, this, this debate about w- whether these rules will you know, which approach or will they allow demand? It, it oddly kind of reminds me of, of the debate on, you know, how do we tackle carbon with, you know, the people who want to cap and, and trade because they, uh, they want to cap something because they feel like we can control the exact amount of carbon versus, you know, a tax or some, you know, purely market-based in, in, incentive that says let people figure out the best way to do this. And I think there's always that tension, right, in these, in these government um, mandates on on how to approach this, and and you know, there's I guess there's some reason to be concerned about how do we measure demand reduction, but um, I think it's always going to work out better if you say here's the goal and let people figure out the best way to get there. Yeah, absolutely. And if they left out efficiency, a lot of people would have uh, slammed the EPA. So my guess is that that demand reductions will of all kinds will certainly be in there. Well, I think there's always a bias, and I, I see this in companies. And I, you know, I, at at the Fortune Green event, there was also this efficiency kind of panel morning discussion that I sat in on. And I think there's always this this bias um, towards supply, you know, towards changing the supply of energy, and not. I mean, let's let's face it, efficiency is never sexy. It never seems sexy to people, even though there's just massive savings sitting there. Um, and that's this constant kind of battle to get more attention for it, you know, with, even within companies as they're deciding it's, you know, it's, it's sexier to put solar up on the roof than it is to cut the, you know, use in half at the, at the factory. So, you know, how do you, how do you make it more exciting and how do you make some of these financial models that are being put in place now to, to make it easier, um, more appealing? Oh, I couldn't agree more. And actually at this other event earlier in the week, the demand response town meeting, if efficiency really does come across as sexy, you know, you've got the most innovative companies and uh, utilities in the country there meeting, talking about how to completely change the consumer experience, the technology experience, and the business models to embrace demand side reductions. And people have been talking about this for for years, but all of a sudden the conversation is very material because 
we're seeing the uh, technologies evolve to a point where they're cheap enough that we're seeing mass adoption. Utilities are talking about this in a very serious way because demand for power is flat and trending downward. And, you know, all of a sudden these market forces are coming together to make efficiency not just relevant, but sexy. So actually at this, um, at this conference, there were a couple really interesting things that came up. And one was, how do you talk about your customers for utilities? What do you call them? And we actually remarkably had this article on our site today from Seth Kaplan of the Conservation Law Foundation. Um, he was sort of reiterating what they were talking about at this event. And that is, do you call customers ratepayers? Regulators are starting to call them prosumers because customers can start to compete with the utility. Um, and, and so that's really a reflection of how this utility relationship is changing. And then all of a sudden, now that we have all these interesting technologies in the home, you have all these privacy concerns as well and what happens with the data. And this sort of goes back to the, the hacking issue we were talking about before. So, you know, as I dig into these issues at these conferences, like for people who are outside of the industry, they might still not see efficiency as sexy, but it is changing within the power sector and within the technology industry. And I really do think that it's becoming sexy. I hope so. It's becoming certainly a, a, a huge opportunity for companies and 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 um, and for the utilities. I mean, one of the one of the people at the at the Fortune event on the panel said that in 30 states now, it's cheaper to avoid a kilowatt hour than it is to generate one by a factor of two or more. So there's there's clearly the right incentives in place in in some in some parts of the country, right? Um, and and within companies, it certainly is. It's got to be always cheaper to reduce before you worry about you know the source of your power. Yeah, and so interestingly, for a utility, energy efficiency and solar look the same because it's reducing mm. demand on the grid, right? And and what it does is it allows the consumer to become a resource, not just a load. And and that just changes the entire dynamic of what the con- what the relationship between a consumer and a utility might be. Yeah, that's right. And Audrey Zibelman who we have mentioned a number of times before, the commissioner of New York's Public Service Commission, kept using this word prosumer, um, kept using the word redefining the utility business model. These buzzwords that a lot of people think come from reporters and people outside the industry, they're now coming from people within the industry who see changes happening. And I see that as a shift very much worth noting. Let's go into our third segment now and hear more about what was happening at the Fortune Brainstorm Green event that Andrew Winston was at this week. This is a, a conference designed around investment and corporate strategy in the broad environmental and clean energy space. And Andrew, you said you were, um, you were there were a couple themes that you wanted to chew on. And the first was interesting to me, and, and that is that you were hearing from companies that they weren't seeing a strong push from consumers for better products or initiatives what do you mean by that? Well, it, it's interesting. I mean, this is a theme that I would say I'm, I'm hearing a lot lately in general, and I kind of brought that a little bit to mind, you know, with me to, to Fortune, but certainly heard it there as well. But I mean, I've been, I've just happened to have meetings more with the consumer product side of the world lately or retail, and um, you're just hearing this, this need for consumer, you know, pull on, on wanting greener products. And the problem is we've been, I think we've been waiting for a consumer shift or some big value shift on buying green for years and years. I think we talked about this on our podcast a couple weeks ago and, um, you know, and it's, it's dangerous, right, for us to wait for that. And there was a moment in the, um, 
at Fortune Green that I thought was really interesting and kind of typical, and it involved Walmart, who we spent a lot of time talking about a couple of weeks ago. And they, you know, they were. Uh, it was a it was a panel about food, and so it was um, uh, Cargill and and Walmart being interviewed, and the question was posed about well, can we feed nine billion people, and do we have to change our diets, and and do people maybe need to eat less meat, um, which is a really you know kind of deep dark consumer question that no one wants to answer usually, and so um, Walmart basically said the Walmart executive said well, we you know we'll do what consumers want if. Um, if they want, you know, organic food priced um, at regular prices, we'll 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 find it for them. We'll source it. If they want beef, we'll source it for them, which I, I think goes to our our conversation a couple of weeks ago about whether Walmart you could call a leader or not. I mean, you know, yes and no. I think that's an example of, you know, that's not true leadership in this realm. And I think companies can help consumers. Um, find more sustainable paths and more sustainable products. I mean, Walmart's partly doing that by launching a line of organic product that they talked about. That is that their point was to price it the same as as regular, which was great. It is you know hard for Whole Foods to hear, but is good for consumers. But on the other end of that question of well, will you have a real harder conversation with them about consumption? No, we'll wait and you know see what they do. And I just think it's kind of a cop out. You know, it's um, you know companies create needs and demands all the time, and 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 do have conversations with consumers about consumption, but usually just trying to get them to buy something. Um, so I, I think companies could do a lot more, but but they they clearly would feel uh, more incentive to move faster towards the realm of greener products. And one of the themes at the event was you know chemicals and and you know kind of lower toxic products. They would feel more uh, you know sanguine about spending money on it if they felt there was pull from consumers. But here's a question: Is you know if a company that large takes a value based decision that we are only going to buy paper products that are that are recycled, that's going to change the entire market. That's going to cause companies that manufacture paper products to manufacture recycled paper products, right? Well, and I think and 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 again, these companies are always kind of finding this fine line, and they are. They are doing that. And it's funny you mentioned the recycled paper products because there was another moment at the event where um, Dave Steiner at Waste Management, one of my kind of favorite CEOs who's really understood the need for a kind of big pivot in his strategy as the world moves towards zero waste to landfill. You know, the company has to change. He said on stage, and this was public, that in the fourth quarter last year, they lost money on recycling. Um, You know, and I talked to him a little bit about it later and was like, well, how is that possible? You know, in a world where commodity prices are fundamentally rising, um, the recycling end of things should be getting more and more valuable. But I guess, you know, in a, commo- in a commodity price rising world, there's also dips and there's, you know, volatility. And there was a bad quarter, as in the prices came down, which was great for everybody buying recyclables. But for the recycling, you know, uh, business itself wasn't so good. <laughs> so, it, I mean, it, it's kind of fascinating. Like, there, there needs to be kind of more systems level conversations because, you know, as he said, on the one hand, you know, maybe as customers, nobody cares if they're losing money, but we, we need to care actually. Like the whole system needs to work right. So, uh, you know, I don't know what the solution is exactly, but, but part of it was companies just aren't buying enough of the recycled content, you know, and as if they set standards for that and agreed to, to do more of that, it would help, you know, prop up the industry. And over time, they would get cheaper. I mean, it's the same with energy, right? If we build the, if we build the industry to a certain scale, it gets cheaper, but there might be some increasing cost in the short run. Yeah. I also think if our country had policies uh, on that, it would make a difference. So if our com- if our country took had a national policy on recycling and e waste and right. uh, you know it would it would change the market. It would create create certainty in a market um, and stimulate it. 
Well, and that's a, that came up because one of the other guys on that panel was uh, a guy named Mike Biddle who runs MBA Polymers, and they've kind of cracked the code on taking plastics and turning them into kind of clean sorting, turning them to clean pellets and selling them back into industry. But he runs mainly in Europe because, the, in short, the laws are better there, right? There's there's take back laws, there's electronics laws, there's you know there's there's more um, incentive and drive and, and regulation to collect recycled material. So it's easier supply for, for him. Um, so it, you know, we do need better, we do need better regulations. It's amazing. That was a funny theme that came out during the whole thing is this is a pretty, you know, it's a pretty pro business event. It's a, you know, you got some CEOs on the, on the stage and they are generally, you know, anti-regulation, but then it kept coming up, but we need the right regulations to drive this. So it's this, it's this strange balancing act yeah. all the time. Well, and, and regulation, when we say regulation, a lot of opponents of regulation have done a great job of branding regulation as something that's overbearing, that creates mandates, and that forces businesses to do something. But you can also think of regulation in terms of performance-based incentives. You know, you talked about these take-back programs. There's a way to talk about regulation to incent a company to do something without creating explicit mandates and making them feel like the government is pushing them. Right. Yeah, regulation has stimulated innovation in all sectors. It always has, right? I mean, and, and I think we all agree that you know, setting like efficiency standards are a great idea for regulation, and you know, it, you know, specific technologies as a as a part of regulation might be problematic. You know, if you're telling people you have to do something a certain way, but um, but you're right. I think the marketing of it has been has been bad. When it's you know, when you hear regulation, there's been so many um, statements that you hear job destroying regulation. Right? It comes yeah. with that word now for some reason, even though. It just it does mean you know some kind of agreed upon standards in a lot of ways, and and I did hear that quite a bit. Well, in the absence of that, you see a lot of companies acting in with short term interests in mind, and more specifically, a lot of public companies. And when we were chatting earlier, you mentioned that there were some CEOs of uh, private companies or recently private companies that were able to take a more long-term view. Um, what were you hearing from some of the, the top leaders at, at those companies? Well, it was really interesting. There were two moments uh, where they had CEOs on stage, and they didn't have that many, so this was two of the you know, three or something, but where they um, kind of asked them similar questions. And one uh, talk was with uh, Levi's CEO, Chip Berg, um, and he had been at P&G for 30 years and had only been at Levi's for a few years. And besides the funny moment where it came out that the jeans he was wearing, um, he had been wearing for a year without washing them because we were talking about saving. <laughs> yeah, believe it or not, saving That's energy. Horrifying. And, uh, we have a lot in common then. I have common, something in common with a big CEO. <laughs> Sa- <laughs> you know, he was talking about saving energy and water. And, and you know, at, like all consumer products companies, they've realized their footprint is not completely in their control. It's mostly somewhere else, upstream or, or downstream. And you know, water use for jeans it's water intensive to make them, um, but it's it's also water intensive to keep washing them. And so that's one way, I guess, is to wash them infrequently. He, I think he air dries, and then someone told me later he actually puts them in the freezer. Um, <laughs> I guess that kills bacteria. Anyways, um, he was asked, you know, what it was like working, you know, with a private company um, versus uh, having been at P&G for years. And he basically said, I mean, it was kind of music to my ears, a lot of what I write about now and talk about that that there's this short-term pressure, that quarterly pressure from Wall Street is a constant problem. You know, he said, look, I still have um, investors. He has a family, right, that, that, that owns and, and, you know, has a lot of in- influence. But he can think longer term. And he said that. He can think about um, investments. He was talking about a, a very small test they're doing with some um, just more kind of sustainably th- 
focused uh, lines of product where they're really looking at worker conditions in particular, that the social side of it, and I guess paying people more. I think that was what he was dancing around. Um, and they're doing it with a test you know, set of products, which they can kind of play around with. And then, and then later in the event, Michael Dell was on stage. And, and if people don't know, Dell took, took the company uh, private last year, I think, um, you know, pri- some big private equity money. But you know, it was a big move for a big public company. And you know, he, he kind of said the same thing. He said, I love being private. It allows us to be bold and think about business in longer-term context. He said, you know, in this country, there's a problem with too much short-term thinking in the educational system, the financial system, the political system. So this was like music to my ears, right? It was, it was great to hear. And, and, but, but it makes me wonder, you know, should, should more companies consider being private? And, and that's – I'm not naive about the kind of pros and cons of that. But this, this pressure on short-term earnings as the only measure of performance is, I think, increasingly – um, kind of insane. Andrew, I have a question for you yeah. um, that does deal with climate. And that is, in the audience at Fortune, these folks that are dealing with sustainability, are they taking to, into consideration the risk um, and all the insurance issues around climate and needing to adjust, adapt? I mean, I'm just wondering how that's playing into how they're thinking about um, investing in sustainability. Well, it, it certainly needs to be, and I think again, this is a crowd that is aware of those those issues. I mean, I, but, but I this mean, is what you talk about in your book. This is where you pitch right. your book. Well, this is <laughs> no, but, yeah, I can pitch the book again. Yay, everyone, go buy the big pivot. But uh, I, I think um, I, you know it, it's really interesting because there's clearly a move in the insurance industry. I just spoke to um, someone the other day who's um, in the reinsurance business, and there's not from Swiss Re or Munich Re, who have been the two companies talking about this insurance. You know cost for years and years, but there's others kind of coming to the table now from, you know, from other big insurance companies. But it's funny because, you know, this, this does come up with, with companies like ones with, you know, lots of assets. I talked to someone from a big hotel chain and said, you know, are, are you guys in management talking about, um, you know, choices around assets? Like, where do you build a new hotel? Should you build one in Miami Beach? Should you invest in that area if, if in the life of this hotel, you know, the, the asset life of this hotel it may be not a very fun place to go visit if there's constant flooding. Um, and, and the people at this event are the sustainability folks. They, they do know about these issues, but it doesn't mean their companies are including it in their thinking. And that's kind of their job, right, is to try to get that thinking into management. And that's why there's still such a huge gap and why everybody needs a wonderful book about the topic. But really, I mean, you need, you need to be talking about this in a different way and about this systemic risk. Very few companies that I've seen are um, – are considering these systemic risk problems and and the cost of doing business kind of rising over time. Let's wrap up the show now and surprise our listeners, try to surprise them and tell them something they don't know. Catherine, got a good story this week? Okay, so this is something completely different, which is I know, Stephen, you get a lot of comments from our devoted listeners whom we love dearly. And most of yours are very much about content and they provide really wonderful ideas. Well, I get comments too. And some of my comments are not on function, but are on form. So I get comments like, um, 
Wow, you sound so alert for someone who has kids in college. <laughs> um, <laughs> or, or, or I had another one who said, well, you know, I listen to you all at one and a half time the speed because you sound so much smarter then. And, um, and I thought that was just That's unbelievable. Bizarre. But now I find out that a lot of people listen to podcasts at one and a half or even two times the normal speed so they can cram it all in in a shorter amount of time. And, you know, all I can think of is I hate listening to my own voice anyway, but my own voice coming out sounding like a chipmunk. I can't imagine anything more irritating. You just took the words out of my mouth. (laughs) But doesn't that say something scary about our our need for for time right now that everything has got to be quicker and shorter and, and crammed and every event I'm at that, that and I give a lot of talks as part of how I make a living and they people ask for shorter and shorter I used to you know they used to say hey come speak for 45 minutes 60 minutes now it's like can you do 20 can you do you know everything's become tetified you know everything's got to be shorter and the problem is I, I think some topics and some ideas actually benefit from you thinking about it for an hour or maybe even more you know like that maybe it's okay to take some time with a book or with a with a podcast and and think a little bit that's um, why i love the podcasting format because you can be flexible with the time and you can let people have a real clear thought well we maybe hope. you know i've got some editing software so maybe i will speed up the conversations in post-production and then when i publish they can listen to it in like four or five times speed <laughs> yeah i you think can you should o- mess you can with offer them. it you can <laughs> offer a, a regular and a double that's speed. right yeah yeah i'll set up an extra feed <laughs> yeah give them version. give them what they want give them what the consumers want right <laughs> that's right that's right andrew what do you have this week anything good yeah i just wanted to um tell a, a kind of fun story about um one of the one of the panels at at fortune green was about something i didn't know about i'm not a i don't can't say i'm someone who watches a lot of um Formula One racing, but there's a new, uh, it seems to be pretty well-funded and and large-scale Formula, uh, not Formula One, but Formula E racing circuit starting, and the E means electric, Um, and there's this man, Alejandro Agag, who's the CEO of this new um, racing series uh, that's going to be racing very powerful electric uh, Formula formula racing cars around some of the biggest cities in the world, like London and and, uh, a bunch of other cities, and I think in the city centers for a lot of these races. I think they've got 10 races planned. And it was just a lot of it about it was really fascinating to me. So the car can only go for 25 minutes, but for making it like a real race and, and for, uh, you know, meeting TV rights, they need, a, they need kind of an hour race. So they realize they can't change the battery. There's no, there's no uh, doing the quick battery change because it's part of the chassis. It's just too built in. So they're just changing cars. There'll be a point where the drivers pull in and just jump into another car. And, and keep driving. And, um, and, you know, they were talking about this. The, the point of all this is that they think they can help drive technology change in electric cars because they can be testing stuff, you know, high-powered stuff that then could trickle down to the rest of the industry. And that he said, you know, I'm hoping that as youth grow up and they want their first car, they'll want it to be electric. Like they'll make this sexy. And we really need that, right? We need, we need green products to be exciting. Um, and I, so I think this is going to be really fascinating. And they're adding a, a kind of social media connected um, side to this, which is fans can through Twitter vote for their favorite driver during the race, and each driver has like a few extra minutes of battery power they can only access if they win the vote. Oh, that's pretty neat. That's yeah, really cool. It's yeah, a, it's, it's very, a good story. Cool. I actually, I'll just let that go into my tell me something I don't know because I heard the same thing from someone at a cocktail reception uh, from the American Council on Renewable Energy. I had no idea, but they were 
they're working with Lockheed Martin to go to NASCAR races and educate people about uh, fuel efficiency, about renewable fuels. Um, you know, the folks at Lockheed Martin are p- putting together a more technical presentation. And uh, interestingly, Ernest Moniz in his speech yesterday, talked about going to visit some NASCAR races and talk about technolo- technology innovation in the race car market and how that could, you know, help o- other automakers meet fuel standards and so forth. So there's a lot of intersection there. It's pretty neat. It's great. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the show this week. Thank you all so much for joining us. Please pass the word about this podcast along. Link to us on Facebook. Tweet us out. Embed us on your website. Whatever you want is fine. We just like to keep spreading the word about the show. Uh, of course, for more information on the topics that we covered, you can head on over to greentechmedia.com slash podcast. There you can find all our back episodes and a number of ways to subscribe. Andrew Winston, author of The Big Pivot, thanks for filling in this week. This was a lot of fun. Glad to be here. Thanks so much. And Catherine Hamilton of 38 North Solutions. Always a fun time chatting with you. A highlight of my week. Yeah, great to great to talk to you all. I hope everybody has a wonderful Memorial Day weekend. And I'm sure plenty of people over the weekend will be listening to you in t- double the speed. <laughs> <laughs> With Catherine Hamilton and Andrew Winston, we are the Energy Gang, a production of GreenTechMedia.com. Jigger Shaw will be back next week, and we will catch you then. Take care.